This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Hello and welcome to a discussion about the Caldor Centre's new policy brief, Cruel, Costly and Ineffective, The Failure of Offshore Processing in Australia. I'm Lauren Martin, and as a longtime journalist, I've watched as politicians in recent years have strayed from the text and the spirit of the 1951 Refugee Convention, even as there are more people displaced than ever before. Governments are focusing not on who needs protection, but on how to keep people out. That's what has some leaders and commentators touting what they call the Australian model. Nine years ago, in 2012, Australia introduced for the second time a policy of offshore processing for all people arriving by boat seeking protection, transferring people seeking asylum by sea to the remote Pacific islands of Nauru and Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. The policy remains in place today. Australian leaders say offshore processing may be tough, but it has saved lives and in what's become a catch cry, even a trophy in the Prime Minister's office, that it stopped the boats. But is that the case? The Caldor Centre's Madeleine Gleeson and Natasha Yacoub decided to examine the evidence in their new policy brief. Madeleine Gleeson is a senior research fellow at the Caldor Centre, where she directs the offshore processing and regional protection projects. She's also the author of the award-winning book, Offshore, Behind the Wire on Manus and Nauru. Natasha Yacoub is an international lawyer and scholar at the Caldor Center. In her 20-year career as a refugee lawyer, she undertook postings to countries including Myanmar, Sudan, and most recently she was posted to Australia, covering Nauru and Papua New Guinea. Thank you both for being here. Madeline, can I begin by asking, given how long offshore policy has been in place in Australia, why write this policy brief now? Thanks, Lauren. Well, as you note, this week marks nine years since offshore processing was reintroduced in 2012. And every one of those anniversaries has been difficult and concerning. Everyone should be used as a reminder to take stock and look beyond the slogans to test whether this policy is actually working or not. But there is additional urgency this year. Uh, it's not an anniversary like any other. This year, we're seeing two other countries, Denmark and the United Kingdom, seriously considering replicating Australia's flawed policy. Denmark has already passed legislation that would allow it to send people offshore to be processed and settled. They're just waiting on a partner country uh, in order to implement that law. And in the UK, there's a bill before Parliament proposing a similar type of arrangement. So these two developments are very worrying but they're not yet done deals, meaning there has never been a more important time to highlight the fact that this policy has been a failure here and should not be taken up elsewhere. We really want to make sure other countries heed the mistakes of Australia and not end up a decade from now in the same place that we are. Mm, so these policymakers are looking to Australia's offshore processing as something to copy. Natasha, maybe you can start by explaining the model. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, Australia tried offshore processing first in 2001 and dismantled it. 
just a few short later, a few short years later, after winding it up, uh, Australia recommenced offshore processing, and the policy has been rolled out in four phases. First, in 2012, Julia Gillard, uh, under a Labor government, brought the policy back in with the aim of no advantage for those seeking asylum in Australia over those who would have sought asylum in Southeast Asia. This didn't work and was abandoned within a year. Then in 2013, a Labor government under Kevin Rudd tightened the screws even further. He said anyone coming by boat seeking asylum would never be settled in Australia. Everyone taken offshore under the Gillard government was returned and new people were transferred. Then in the third phase in September 2013, with the election of a new conservative coalition government, uh, Operation Sovereign Borders was launched. This was a military operation to turn away boats which kept coming. And asylum seekers during that phase were transferred to Manus and Nauru, with the last reported transfer taking place in 2014. Then by 2014, the fourth phase had started and Manus, and, uh, Manus Island in Papua New Guinea and Nauru were at capacity. The majority of persons coming by boat didn't even end up offshore and not even under the Labor government or a coalition. They remained onshore and have been subjected to punitive measures in Australia. That's a lot of shifts in the policy. Did the political messaging shift too? Absolutely, Lauren. The stated aims of the policy have always remained pretty consistent at their core, despite being packaged slightly differently by different governments. So those aims have been to stop the boats, as the slogan goes, to save people from drowning at sea and to break the so-called business model of people smugglers. Those have been the big selling points, if you will, for offshore processing in Australia. But there have been subtle shifts in emphasis along the way particularly as it became evident that offshore processing was, in fact, doing none of those things. As Natasha notes, uh, Labor dismantled the first iteration of this policy in 2008, and when they did so, they publicly called it out as a cynical, costly, and ultimately unsuccessful exercise, and they were right to do so. But by 2012, there was political impasse in Parliament about the best way to respond to a rising boat arrival, so they made a concession to the opposition, led at that time by Tony Abbott, and agreed to reintroduce this policy as a compromise, hoping that by doing so, the opposition would also support some of Labor's asylum policies. So while we heard a lot in the earlier phases about deterring boat arrivals and saving lives at sea, this was really, from Labor's perspective, a political necessity rather than a policy which they genuinely backed. When Rudd came in back as Prime Minister briefly in 2013, he focused on many of the same things as Gillard, but perhaps pushed a little bit harder on the notion of breaking the business model of people smugglers, which is also a problematic concept, uh, as we highlight in our research brief. But the real shift then came in September 2013, with the election of the Abbott coalition government. This was when, for the first time, we had a government that genuinely believed in the mission of offshore processing. And they oversaw a massive expansion of capacity at the offshore detention centres and very, very high rates of transfer offshore, uh, despite warnings from contractors in those places at the time that overcrowding was creating real risks. 
So that was 2013 and some of 2014. But then things really did start to change. It was uh, subtle at first, almost imperceptible, but at some point the coalition must have realised that offshore processing by itself did not stop boats. It did not save lives and it certainly did not stop people smuggling. We saw this change in action at first as the government stopped transferring people offshore entirely, instead going to quite extraordinary lengths to turn people back at sea rather than take up the availability of offshore processing. And then by later years, 2017, 2018, when it was undeniable this policy was deeply flawed and crumbling, we saw more explicit shifts in government language. And these are detailed in our policy brief. We saw Peter Dutton, who was Minister for Home Affairs at the time, trying to spin offshore processing as Labor's mess and claim that the coalition hadn't put people offshore, Labor had. And now they were stuck trying to resolve this failed policy. Factually, of course, this was simply wrong. Uh, both governments had overseen transfers offshore. Uh, but the relevant point here is that for at least the last few years, the Australian government itself, in its language and actions, has shown that this is not the key policy it once saw it to be. That's a fascinating encapsulation of, of how this has gone from both of you. I just want to pursue a little bit more with you, Madeline. You said it hasn't stopped the boats. Can you just explain to us, because that is definitely been a constant message through this. Absolutely. That is the message that has been invoked to defend uh, spiralling crises on both islands, to defend an incredibly punitive and deliberately cruel policy. Uh, the reason always invoked to justify that conduct is that it was necessary to stop the boats. But the government's own data doesn't support this. This isn't a matter of speculation or anecdote. The formal figures from the government show that boat arrivals not only continued, but in fact increased in the first year of offshore processing. We saw more people arrive in that first year than at any other time since uh, boats were recorded to be arriving in the 1970s. Uh, and the drop-off in arrivals really didn't start to occur until after the government had pivoted away from offshore processing and was really pursuing maritime interception as its core policy. And make no mistake, maritime interception also is a matter of serious concern. But if we're focusing on what stopped the boats, the data does not support the claim that offshore processing did that. And if we look at key points during the policy when it started to uh, be wound back, started to be dismantled, there was no corresponding increase in the number of people arriving by boat. So when people started to be transferred back to Australia in larger and larger numbers for physical and mental health concerns, there is no evidence in the data that there was an increase in boats. When Australia struck a deal with the United States to allow people offshore to be resettled in the US, we saw no increase in the number of boats. When the detention centres were closed down, we saw no increase in the number of boats. So while they continually claim that uh, offshore processing is an essential part of a matrix of measures, the data does not support that. And when we look at how detrimental this policy has been, it's very concerning that it's been kept on foot when it's not meted its primary stated aim. So if it didn't stop the boats, Natasha, did it at least save lives? Well, Lauren, you would have hoped to have seen deaths at sea drop in 2012 when the policy came in, but it didn't. Deaths continued at broadly the same rate as in previous years. 
Now, there were no deaths reported since 2014, but this is linked to the fact that new secrecy laws came in then. And according to those laws, if you share information, you risk jail. In addition to that, there's uh, been a lack of independent oversight of Operation Sovereign Borders. What we do know is that there have been deaths reported in offshore processing, 18 people in fact. Six are reported to have taken their own lives. One person was murdered. At least two died from a medical condition after Australia denied or delayed access to appropriate treatment. And in one of those cases, a coroner found that the death was preventable. So I think as you can gather, this policy is not driven by humanitarian concerns. It's not driven by saving lives. It has clearly ruined the lives of so many people. No one transferred, uh, no one has been transferred since 2014, but all of those held on Manus and Nauru and there were some 4,180 persons in total. They suffered terribly and this harm was predictable. Pediatricians said that children on Nauru are the most traumatized they've ever seen. A senior trauma counselor said that in his 43 year career, he had never seen such atrocities as what he'd seen. And that was the word he used, atrocities, as what he'd seen in, in Manus and Nauru. And as I said, this harm is predictable. Medical evidence has shown that uh, the detrimental impact on the health of asylum seekers in detention, which becomes more severe over time. And this policy has been carried out with full knowledge of that harm. In fact, the harm is an essential part of the reason for carrying out offshore processing in the first place and it cannot really be carried out uh, in a way that's consistent with human rights, human rights law. Yeah, I think what you're talking about there, and I really appreciate you talking about these things is so difficult, but it does get to the systemic nature of this policy, the systemic cruelty of the policy, which is something that um, you both outline in the brief and I just want to make sure that um, I've given you the opportunity to, to put that in context and explain it, to, if you have any more to say about that. Thanks, Lauren. I appreciate you mentioning that the cruelty aspect is the hardest part to talk about. And it's also, it was the hardest part to write about um, because there have been constant warnings about the abuse and neglect of uh, individuals transferred to, to Nauru and Papua New Guinea. Um, and all of it was predictable, predictable and preventable. Uh, but uh, yet people were transferred still uh, to offshore detention centers and endured extraordinarily harsh conditions. And for children and babies born into it, um, the impact has been particularly severe. So. You know, there are reports of children um, who were once brightly uh, really focused on education and wanting to study and wanting to be, uh, you know, become doctors, uh, becoming increasingly ill, wanting to take their own lives. Um, and in some cases, getting what's called resignation syndrome, where uh, once brightly children become catatonic and um, have food and fluid refusal. Uh, for women and girls who fled gender persecution in their home countries, 
um, they've been exposed in some instances to rape or sexual violence in Nauru without uh, possibility for adequate safety from their attackers and, and no access to justice. Gay men were sent to Papua New Guinea where homosexual acts are illegal. And in every one of these cases, Australia had both the authority and the capacity to bring them from offshore locations, but they've resisted doing so, even where it's been a matter of life and death. It's the idea that Australia would pursue this policy, not just once, but for a second time after all of the, its failings had been documented, all of this cruelty had been documented, was quite a shock for those who'd been involved in, in documenting its failures. Yes, Australia has continued this policy for, for nine years now. And they've also continued to pour a lot of money into it. Madeline, can you talk to us about the financial costs? The financial costs are extraordinary low and I think would shock uh, most Australian taxpayers to know what their money is being sunk into and at what rates. Obviously, the, the primary cost that should concern us are the human costs uh, for those that are subjected to the policy uh, and also those who are tasked with implementing it. Um, and there's diplomatic costs, there's, there's political costs, legal costs, but if, if we focus just on the financial costs, uh, it's incredibly difficult to get a true and accurate figure on what this has been uh, taxing us for the last nine years. Um, that in itself should be cause for concern. This is a matter of public policy. Every Australian has the right to know how much it's costing us. Uh, the fact that there has been uh, so much ambiguity should in itself uh, really raise a red flag. But what we do know is also very concerning. We know that this is costing, on average, at least a billion dollars per year. Um, and that is not including a significant number of other costs, which we believe have been excluded from those figures. So a billion dollars a year is very, very expensive for a policy which is not meeting its stated aims. Um, the cost alone is not the only issue, though. The other issue is the government's inability to forecast the costs of this policy. So if we look at, at a couple of years back, what the government does each year is they try to forecast what the policy will cost them in one, two, three years' time. And that is for the interests of good budgeting, uh, good management of our economy, uh, the necessity to, to forecast uh, budgets. If we look back uh, historically, not only have they failed to forecast accurately, the actual figures have in some cases been three times more than what was forecast. And that is because this is an incredibly difficult policy to implement, to predict, to see all of the variables. And there are escalating costs. There are escalating costs related to uh, healthcare of people subject to the policy who have just been in this spiraling health crisis. Um, costs of legal challenges. We've faced constant legal challenges to this policy. Um, so the costs keep going up, even as the number of people offshore go down. So we are now looking at there's less than 300 people actually left offshore. As Natasha mentioned, most of the people are back in Australia. Yet still, uh, we are seeing estimates of about a billion dollars a year to hold less than 300 people offshore. And if we look at what it would cost as an alternative to uh, allow people to live in the community in Australia on a bridging visa while they await their claim being processed, uh, that would have massive financial savings. Uh, so it is very, very difficult to justify policy which costs so much money 
particularly when it's not meeting its stated policy aims and involving so much harm. And so even with only a few hundred people still on Nauru and Papua New Guinea, which is what we're up to now in this point in 2021, costs haven't come down in recent years? Costs have not noticeably come down, no. And, and we've just recently had reports of uh, further uh, great expenditure, which is expected in the coming year. So we're not seeing the cost come down, even as the number of people come down. Uh, it's just not happening. And we've been promised for many years now that once the capital expenditure of the early years was behind us, that the cost would come down. It's mm. simply not happening. And you also mentioned one of the costs has been um, legal challenges. Can you tell us a little bit, has it been successfully challenged in the courts? Look, this policy has faced legal challenges from all angles since uh, since its inception almost um, in 2012, since its reintroduction. Um, Australia has sought to distance itself from the legal consequences of this policy by leaning into this fiction that because people are located in other countries and because to a certain extent the laws of those countries govern aspects of the policy, that that means that Australia itself is not legally responsible. Um, that theory has been struck down repeatedly by domestic and international courts. Um, none of these courts are buying the fiction that Australia is not legally responsible for what's going on. Uh, we have UN bodies who are tasked with being the experts at implementation of international human rights law. They have very clearly and explicitly stated that Australia's obligations do extend to people who have been transferred offshore. And every single one of those that has reviewed Australia's offshore processing policy since 2012 has made findings contrary to Australia in terms of the extent to which it either is not uh, complying with international obligations. That is to say, every UN body that has reviewed our policy has raised concerns with Australia that what it's doing is not in line with international law. As if that's not enough, we've had six communications made to the International Criminal Court against Australia, alleging crimes against humanity and, and other international crimes. Now, that's pretty shocking. I think most Australians would be very surprised to hear that Australia is being referred to the International Criminal Court, because that's the court that you usually associate with crimes of genocide and, and crimes of war crimes and, you know, places elsewhere, not Australia. So six communications to the ICC uh, since 2014. And that's before we even get to the Australian challenges. And uh, Frankly, Lauren, our courts at various levels have been consumed with challenges to this policy uh, since it began. Uh, and those challenges are not just costly in terms of the government defending them, they can be costly in terms of uh, having to make settlements to people who've been harmed. So we have uh, what's believed to be the largest human rights settlement in history was made, $70 million to people who'd been detained on Manus Island. Um, and that's just one case. Uh, it's also costly to our legal system by uh, consuming resources of our legal system that would be better directed elsewhere that are constantly being used up trying to defend this very flawed policy in circumstances where Australia has been on notice since the very beginning that it is out of line with what's required by law uh, and should really be abandoned. And Natasha, do you want to add anything there on the legal cases? Uh, I think Madeline has outlined the national and international challenges to Australia's policies really well. The only um, 
point I would add is that there was a successful challenge to the Papua New Guinea Supreme Court in 2016. And the court found that the agreement between Australia and Papua New Guinea to forcibly transfer people to, to detention in, um, on Manus Island was unconstitutional. And one judge even said that it breached human rights. Uh, and it was uh, following that decision in 2017 that Australia withdrew from Manus Island Detention Centre detention and people were um, moved elsewhere in, in Papua New Guinea. So. Been, there have been a range of legal challenges and on many fronts over the time of the course of the whole um, offshore processing policy. What's been very clear, as Madeline said, uh, was that it breached international human rights law and that includes fundamental rules of international refugee law, such as uh, the requirement not to send people to a place where they fear persecution or serious harm, that's the prohibition on refoulement. But what's important to note is that this model itself, and this is important to note when uh, thinking about uh, you know, copying the model or in fact, more to the point why it's a policy uh, and model not to be copied, is that it cannot be implemented in accordance with international law or, or human rights, international human rights law standards. The driving principle of the policy is deterrence. So conditions offshore must be as bad as or worse than those from which people have fled. And, and, and refugees who've spoken out have said that. Uh, that's their view. We've already detailed that. And for the same reason, the policy cannot make exceptions for vulnerable people. That, in, that means that uh, you know, children have been transferred, including unaccompanied minors. There have been uh, pregnant women uh, held in offshore locations, disabled persons, elderly victims of torture and so on. And just remember between 80 and 90% of the people who were transferred to Manus and Nauru are refugees. That means they proved in a legal process that they'd fled persecution and, and serious harm. They asked for Australia's help and instead they were profoundly harmed. That is so devastating. Uh just going back to your the stated aims of the policy, did it did offshore processing at least manage to break the people smugglers business model? Madeline, I think that was the other one that you mentioned. No, Lauren, it didn't. I mean, the concept of breaking the business model of smugglers is tied to the number of boat arrivals. Clearly, if boats not only stopped but in fact increased, then the, the people smugglers were in no way you know, put out of business as, as the claim was put. Uh, so the short answer is because we didn't see a decrease in the number of boats, no, it didn't affect the, the business model of smugglers. But uh, there, there are actually deeper and more fundamental concerns with the very claim that uh, such a punitive and detrimental policy uh, is being pursued with the primary goal of breaking the people uh, smugglers business model and uh, these concerns are relevant not just to Australia where that goal uh, enjoys support across the political spectrum but also elsewhere we've seen the same language in the UK where they've spoken about how we need to do this to break this you know, so-called business model. The main problem with this approach is that it misdirects attention from the core of the issue. The core of the issue at least in Australia is people seeking protection. Uh, as Natasha has noted, the vast majority are found to be refugees once they've gone through the process or otherwise to be in need of international protection. 
so these are people who don't have the option of returning home uh, and they don't have the option of staying where they are. For many, Australia will be the first refugee convention country that they hit after fleeing their homes. So they don't have any other options. They are displaced. They need to get to safety and they're going to take whatever measures are, are open to them, whatever pathways are open to them. Rather than focusing on people smugglers, states that are concerned with you know, regular maritime migration would, would be better putting their energy into looking at what these protection needs are. Who needs protection? Where are they? What are the options available? And expanding the pathways for them to reach protection in a, a safe, orderly, you know, legal manner, uh, that is the more effective way of addressing this issue, um, keeping the focus where it should be. There are other issues with this as well, and, and these should really be front of mind, particularly for European states. Um, smuggling is often portrayed as a terrible crime and something which uh, creates huge harm for the people who are smuggled. And certainly, in, in some, perhaps many cases, that is true. But defined objectively, smuggling is just uh, a matter of facilitating the movement of people into another country contrary to that country's immigration law. It is not necessarily... Uh, a terrible, evil uh, thing as it's portrayed to be. And European history shows this better than most. It was smugglers who helped save many of the people who escaped the Holocaust. And if it hadn't been for smugglers, many people would not have escaped and would not have survived. Um, we have examples of that closer to home as well. Smugglers for many people are a lifeline that help them reach safety. And I think things have gone the wrong way around. Rather than it being government policy needing to tackle smuggling, it should be seen that smuggling is a response to government policy. When you close off all the pathways and avenues that people might take to reach safety, uh, then there is going to pop up uh, this other network of people who will help them get there one way or another. So I think a bit more of a nuanced approach to the people smuggling issue would be helpful. Uh, and certainly it should never be the primary driving aim for a policy. Thanks. I, I'd like to ask you, because you've laid it out there, I guess having gone through all this research and, and measured the policy against all of these different goals and found it wanting, at this point, what do you hope will be the impact of this work that you've done? Natasha, can you start with that? It's our hope that this policy will be brought to an end and will be brought to a formal end immediately. Given the failures that we've outlined, the failure of the policy on its own terms, offshore processing has proved itself to be unnecessary, uh, costly, and inherently cruel. It didn't fail once, it failed on two occasions and it should not be repeated again in Australia. For those few hundred people who are still in Papua New Guinea and Nauru, they should be brought to Australia and all persons transferred should be allowed to settle in Australia with secure legal status, with family reunification without delay and the assistance that they require to recover from the harm that they've endured. Whether they're refugees or not, all persons who were transferred have suffered under Australia's policies and they require immediate and lasting solutions. What we don't want to do is mark a 10 year anniversary of this policy in 2022. 
It should be brought to an end and it should be brought to an, an, amend, an end with immediate solutions for those who have been subjected to it. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks. And Madeline? This should be a, a warning to other states, uh, Denmark, the UK and others, that this policy did not work here. We pursued it really for less than two years. And since then, Australia has been mired in this policy uh, at great cost for more than seven years. It really has been uh, a painful failure for all involved. Uh, so I, we just hope that other states can learn from our mistakes and not make uh, the same errors that we have and get mired in what has really been one of our worst policy failures. Madeline and Natasha, thank you so much for talking with us today and thank you for this really powerful piece of work. I recommend everyone go and read it in full. It's called Cruel, Costly and Ineffective, The Failure of Offshore Processing in Australia. And you can find the policy brief on the Caldor Centre website. That's caldorcenter.unsw.edu.au. Thanks for listening. Thank you.